Well, I'm also going to be reading the scripture pastor passage that Pastor Ben's going to be preaching this morning. It's from Colossians 1, 15 through 23, and it's on page 924 in the Pew Bible. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is God's word. Well, at this time, uh, kids ages four years old through kindergarten can be dismissed for children's church. And uh, as they're heading out there, um, I'll just say it's good to be back with you all. I, you haven't seen me around the last few weeks because my wife and I welcomed a new baby girl into the world, baby Georgia, and Wit and the baby are doing well, and uh, it's a joy to be back up here. I'm up here sooner than I thought I was going to be because Benjamin had to travel out of town last minute, but it is a joy to be here with you all this morning. And, uh, and, and to be honest, as I sat and heard that text read, there is almost no passage more glorious in the Bible. It's hard to think of one. Um, I don't know if I'm just emotional because I'm lacking sleep or what this is, but we're going to press through it. <laughs> but we're continuing this morning uh, our fall series called I Will Build My Church, um, God's Antidote for Our Anxious and Apathetic Age. And the first two sermons in this series have been setting the stage, but this morning, after those two sermons of introduction, we begin the series in earnest, talking about what the local church is and how it is the antidote for our anxious and apathetic age. And our goal in this series is to show you how the church of Christ, though she might appear on the outside to be nothing special at times, is way better than you could ever imagine. And that the church is the true community that we all really long for. But the only way the church is the antidote to our anxious and apathetic age is if what it says in verse 18 of Colossians 1 is true. It is only true if Jesus is the head of the church. Apart from that, the church is just another social club that's designed to make us feel a little bit better, or another human institution that is bound to fail one day. 
But I want us to see this morning that because the real Jesus is the head of his church, we can stop freaking out and we can hold fast to him as our authority and our life. If the one who is in charge of all things and is directing history is the head of the church, then we can give up our fear and nihilism and we can become people of hope and courage. And so I pray that you'll follow, follow me through this glorious text. We'll worship Jesus together and we'll see how that can happen. Would you pray with me? Father, the Apostle Paul prays at the end of all the glories of the book of Romans, Romans chapter 11, he says, for from you and through you and to you are all things. Lord, give us a window into that reality this morning. Help us to see that you are everything. And apart from you, we have nothing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So uh, we're going to attack this text in a simple way this morning. So basically what I want to do is I want to take all the glorious teaching of Colossians 1, and I want to, I think, according to the lines of the text, press it through ver chapter 1, verse 18. So we're going to look at it in a simple two-point outline this morning. We're going to ask the question, who is Jesus, and what does it mean that Jesus is the head of his church? So who is the real Jesus, and what does it mean that he is the head of his church? So first, who is Jesus? And you might have noticed this when it was read, but Colossians 1 is a poem. It doesn't read just like a lot of sections of Paul's other letters do. And in fact, this section of Colossians 1 was an ancient song of praise to Jesus, and if you notice, maybe in your Bible, if you look at it, it has it kind of offset in special type. Some do. But if you look at the beginning of verse 15 and the beginning of verse 18, you'll see this language of firstborn repeated. And so I want to structure the, quest, the answer to the question, who is Jesus, around those two sections of this song of praise. So who is Jesus? He's the firstborn of creation and he's the firstborn from the dead. The first, Jesus is the firstborn of creation. There in verse 15, it says, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, what does that mean? What in the world does that mean? It, it makes it sound like Right? At first glance, it makes it sound like Jesus is simply the first creature that God made. And in fact, this passage was one of the few passages in the Bible that was in the ammo belt of some of the heretics of the early church who wanted to point at Jesus and say, he is not God, but he's just a mere man. I think it did. Oh, there we go. We good, Nazar? Okay, um, it has full battery and everything, we should be good. Uh, but, but Jesus is not just the first and greatest in a category of created things. Jesus stands outside of those categories altogether. Paul uses the language here of the firstborn 
in, in, in alignment with, with how the ancient cultures would have seen the firstborn. So in ancient cultures, the firstborn son is the one who was the heir to everything his father possessed. Everything that the father had was the inheritance of the firstborn son. So here Paul is saying Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, meaning that as he is the son of the father, he owns all of creation. Everything is his by right. Every molecule belongs to Jesus. And in verses 16 and 17, then, Paul lays out his evidence for making such a grand claim about Jesus. Read with me those two verses again. He says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Paul's saying here that, that asking Jesus if he owns all of creation is like asking Elon Musk if he owns Tesla. David McHale. <laughs> David has a weird obsession with Elon Musk. You can talk to him about it. <laughs> it's a joke around the office. But if you were to ask Elon Musk, do you own Tesla? He'd say, I don't only own Tesla, I made Tesla. Right? The, the, title, the title owner and founder means more than just owner. It means something if you're the one that actually creates it. So Jesus did not just inherit creation as something that somebody else created and gave to him. Jesus himself is the creator who was before all things and through whom every single atom of existence came into being. And not only did he make all things, but verse 17 says that Jesus himself is the glue that holds all things together. Do you see that? He holds all, all things in him hold together. And what this tells me is that despite what we might hear in our world today, we do not live in an impersonal universe of random chance forces. There is a person at the heart of the universe who holds all things together. Yes, via the physical means of gravity and whatnot, but Jesus is behind all things, personally holding the universe together. Without Jesus holding your body in place, you would fly into a million pieces. Without Jesus holding back the sea, they would come up on the shore and wash over everything. Stars and planets would fly out of orbit. He holds all things together in him. And notice too in verse 16, what do those all things encompass? It says things visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. What he means by that is all forms of earthly and spiritual power. Jesus didn't just make every kingdom and king. He made every single spiritual being. And they are all subservient to him. Now, that might not be as big of a deal to us, but to those hearing this letter in the, book, in, in the church in Colossae, that was a huge deal. 
Paul wrote this letter to combat a false teaching in the church at Colossae that said that you had to obey the teachings and submit yourself to this whole rank and file of spiritual authorities in order to ascend the ladder up to God. And Paul's saying, no. They all bow the knee to Jesus. Every authority, invisible or visible. And what that means for us, there is no power, none, whether unseen spiritual beings or Vladimir Putin that were not made by Jesus and don't bow the knee to King Jesus. So think about this for a second. Jesus is the firstborn of creation. That means Jesus pre-exists all of our present problems. Nothing takes him by surprise. No age is too crazy to be out of his control. No world events in any sort of succession threaten his hold on the universe. He holds it all together. He stands over every power, seen or unseen, who might be a threat. He made it, and he holds it all. But Jesus, the real Jesus, is also the firstborn from the dead. You see the parallel here in verse 18. So in verse 15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And now here in verse 18, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now, you see how that statement parallels verse 15, but it kind of seems to come out of nowhere. I mean, He is the beginning. Of what? Uh, what? What are you talking about, Paul? What, what is he the beginning of? Well, it doesn't seem to come out of nowhere quite as much. If, if we go back to the verses just before this hymn that, 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 pre, that, that immediately precede it. So, so let your eyes go back with me to verses 13 and 14. Look at those two verses. It says, he, that's God the Father, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So this helps us make sense of what Paul is assuming here in verses 18 and 20. So in verses 15 through 17, Paul is looking at all of created reality. But in verses 18 through 20, he's assuming the reality he's speaking of is the domain of darkness that's referred to in verse 13. So, so in these verses, we are looking at how Jesus is in charge of creation from the perspective of sin entering into the world. So human rebellion plunged God's creation into chaos and conflict. Death has entered the world. Some spiritual beings created by Jesus have rebelled against him and actively work against his plan and his people. That is the domain of darkness. That's what Paul is speaking to here. And what he says is that Jesus, the very fullness of God, came into this domain corrupted by sin and death in order to resurrect it, in order to make something new entirely. 
Look with me at verses 19 and 20 of chapter 1. It says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him the fullness of God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, to get the logic of how this works, let's look at verse 13 again. So look back, look back up at verse 13, where it says, God transferred us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. He transferred us. But you see, that transfer can't happen for anyone until somebody makes that transfer a possibility, until somebody opens up a new reality, a reality that's not marked by sin and death and spiritual rebellion. Jesus, in other words, is the first person to make that transfer. It pleased Jesus, the fullness of God, to take to himself everything that we are as human beings apart from sin. As I've heard one pastor say it, he coded himself into our DNA. And he died on the cross as a man to bring peace. His blood brings peace with God for sinners because he dies in our place, canceling the record of wrongs held against us. But his blood also brings peace to all things because on the cross, Jesus wins victory over every power that would come against God's people. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, it says that on the cross, Jesus disarmed every power that would come against God and his rule in creation. All things. And when Jesus is raised from the dead, he breaks open a totally new realm of existence, the new creation, the kingdom of God. That is what Jesus is the beginning of, as it says in verse 18. He's the beginning of a new world. He's the beginning of, as Handel said in his famous Messiah, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. This new creation breaks into the world order. And now, Jesus is the firstborn. He's the first of many to follow after him. Because Jesus has broken in to the new creation in his resurrection, any who trust in him can be transferred into that new kingdom and have the promise that one day we will be raised from the dead. And that's not even the best part. <laughs> Look with me at verse 18 again. It says, he's the beginning, the, first form, the firstborn from the dead, that, so that, for the purpose that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, one of the main devices that composers use when they're uh, creating a piece of music is a theme. And it depends how tightly you define it, but many even of our current pop songs do this. A theme can be as simple as a, a three-note melody that occurs. Uh, and it occurs usually at the beginning of the piece, so your ear can easily catch what it is. 
And then throughout the piece, the composer will vary the theme, and he'll, he'll do variations on the theme. And then at the end, it all ties together towards this great crescendo where you see the main theme and all of its variations come together towards this great crescendoing point. So one of the most popular examples from classical music is Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. So if that doesn't mean anything to you, it's the dun-dun-dun-dun, dun-dun-dun-dun. That's Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Or maybe if you're not as highbrow as that, which I'm not, the Imperial March from Star Wars is a great example of theme. Uh, Luke, you're smiling so big right now. I love it. Um, Paul is saying here that Jesus is the theme of the universe. The ultimate purpose for all of creation but also for the new creation. The ultimate purpose for why Jesus came to earth and bled and died and was raised from the dead is that he might be preeminent. That's just a fancy Bible word for saying that he might be first, that he might reign supreme in all things. The world does not yet recognize the supremacy of Jesus, but his resurrection is the assurance that one day the whole universe will resound in a symphony whose theme is the Lord Jesus Christ. As Douglas Moo, a Bible commentator, puts it, Christ stands at the beginning of the universe as the one through whom it came into being, and he he stands at its end as the goal of the universe. Think about this. To summarize this, Jesus' resurrection is the assurance that that the story of our lives and the story of the world is a comedy and not a tragedy. The story of our world, of the universe, has a happy ending. Because Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, we know that the story ends with him reigning supreme over all things with all things, including ourselves, spending eternity in his new world of peace that he purchased by his blood on the cross. Firstborn from the dead, the real Jesus, that's who he is. Firstborn of creation, firstborn from the dead. But if you notice, I have not mentioned, the only thing about Jesus' identity I haven't mentioned in these six verses is that line at the beginning of verse 18 that I said was the main point of this whole sermon. (laughs) I know, right? It says, he is the head of the body, the church. So what does that phrase mean? And how does it relate to all of the glories of who the real Jesus is? Well, To start, let's think about what our head is in relationship to our bodies. So our head guides our body. Think about our mind processes information and then directs our body on how to act and move. Our head is also the source of our life. Without our head, we can't live. that's, That's how it works. If your head goes, you can't live. And so I think the good, and and there's good biblical arguments to back this up, that when we think about the word head, we should think of Jesus as our authority and guide and as the source of our life. 
means he's our authority and our guide and the source of our life. And so let's ask another question that doesn't seem like it might be related, but I promise that it is. So if the goal of everything is that Jesus is going to be preeminent, but, but he isn't preeminent yet in all things. All people don't yet bow the knee to Jesus. His new creation hasn't extended to every corner of the earth. Where does Jesus reign now? Where is he preeminent? Where is he upheld as supreme? Where is his new creation life experienced? In his body, the church Notice, right after Paul expounds this massive vision of Jesus, where he says all things, I think it's eight or nine times in these six verses, he applies this massive vision of Jesus directly to a local church. That's where he goes immediately in verse 21. He says, you, church at Colossae, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled, just like in verse 20, with all things, that has become yours. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Where does new creation happen now? In the church. The church is where Jesus is preeminent. The church is where Jesus, as our head, leads us, his people. And it's where we draw spiritual life from him as our source. And Jesus invites us into that relationship with him. All we have to do is believe into him, the head. But friends, Christ is not our head by default when we open the church doors on Sunday. The church only reflects new creation glory in as much as she holds fast to Christ as her head. We all know, and some of you have the scars and the stories to prove it, that just because you walk into a church building on Sunday, or just because you get together with people from church, it doesn't mean you experience the peace-filled life of new creation together. Later in the book of Colossians, Paul speaks of the false teachers that come against the church in chapter 2, verse 19, as those who are actively not holding fast to Christ as the head. Or in the words of chapter 1, verse 23, they have shifted from the hope of the gospel. You see, we, we all have a tendency to look to other heads, to, to other things as sources of authority and life instead of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we do, we get anxious, we get apathetic, our life starts to spiral. But this is where the, this sermon is all going. This is what I, I, I want you to walk away with. Think about the Christ to which you are united. Think about the one who is your head. 
You have the real Jesus as your head, church. You don't need to look anywhere else. He's the one who holds everything together. He's the one who was raised from the dead who assures you that your life has a happy ending. You don't need to look anywhere else. Because the real Jesus is the head of his church, we can stop freaking out and hold fast to him as our authority and life. And so, let me, I know this sermon was very much so up here, and that's intentional. We wanted to worship Jesus together. But let me close with three ways that the truth of the real Jesus being the head of his church applies to us, and how it can help us to not freak out, to help be the antidote to our anxiety and our apathy. So first, Because Jesus is our head, our hope doesn't rest in human leaders. And one of the primary places we look for guidance in life is to human authorities. We all do this. We all want somebody to lead us. So maybe for some, it's politicians. For others, it's your favorite podcaster. For others, it's your personal trainer. In in the church, it's so easy for us to look away from Christ as our head and place our confidence in human leaders and in their teachings. We look to a particular pastor or a particular Christian fad of teaching rather than looking to Christ who is our head. But church, Jesus Christ, the one who owns the universe, the one who created every earthly and spiritual power and who triumphed over every evil power on the cross is our head. We don't need to look anywhere else but to him as our ultimate authority and source of life. And practically what that means is that Jesus is the chief member and pastor of Community Free Church. And the moment that myself or any of the other pastor elders stop submitting ourselves to King Jesus as our head is when you should stop submitting to us and continue submitting to Jesus Christ. He is our head. No human authority or leader. Second, because Jesus is our head, we can have courage in times of fear. No one needs to tell us that we live in a culture of outrage and fear. I don't think anybody batted an eye when the word anxious was used to describe all of us in this sermon series title. And our world is structured to monetize our fears through targeted political ads and social media campaigns. And not to mention, as Christians, we are living in an increasingly hostile culture. It's not hard to find a bunch of things to be afraid of. But church... The one who has told us, I will build my church, is the same one who holds the universe together, and you are united to him like a body is united to a head. Jesus has conquered every enemy of ours by his death and resurrection. And what that means is that we can have real courage in the face of real fears. No matter what that is for you, or for us as a church. And I'm not talking about the kind of courage that our culture celebrates, keyboard warrioring against people that you'll never meet in real life. 
real courage is to not return evil for evil, but to overcome evil with good. Real courage is to humbly obey and submit to Jesus even in the midst of opposition and pressure. Real courage is to continue to do what Christian teacher Francis Schaeffer called the Lord's work in the Lord's way. And lastly, because the real Jesus is our head, our eyes are lifted to a happy ending. One of the chief things, I loved David's confession and assurance of pardon today. It was all focused on Christian hope. And one of the things that ought to mark, the main things that ought to mark a Christian is hope. I ask you this question. Do you really believe that your future and the future of the world is a happy ending? We live in a day where cynicism and criticism reign, where hope is, last, is laughed off as naivete. But no matter how pessimistic you might be about particular details in our city, in our country, in the church more broadly, Jesus' resurrection assures us that our future and the future of the world is headed toward the sunrise of an eternal day where there is no darkness at all. Jesus will be preeminent in all things. The golden age of history is not somewhere in the past. It is in the future tied up with the Lord Jesus Christ. May we not be pulled down into the cynicism of our day. Jesus will reconcile all things. You can't get a bigger, more grand hope and promise than all things. And that's what we have in Christ. And for all of us today, we have an opportunity to hold fast to our head actively right now. Just as it pleased Jesus to take on human flesh, and just as it pleased him to shed his blood for our reconciliation on the cross, so it pleases him today to offer himself to you in the bread and the cup in this meal of communion. This meal shatters our anxiety and apathy. Because what this meal does, when we take it by faith, it holds out for us the world-upholding, world-restoring, real and living Jesus. That's what you get in this meal. And so come, eat and drink of Christ today, and may he become more and more preeminent in our lives and in this church. Well, as we come to the table just a few words of detail, and then I'll pray. The band will come up, and we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Um, but as you come, uh, we'd ask that you, whenever you're ready, come down the center aisle, and there'll be uh, two servers on either side. Um, come take the bread and the juice from them. We'd ask that you then go on the outside, back to your seat, and wait to take of the bread and the juice until we all receive it, so we can take it together as the Lord's Church. I'll also ask that if you are somebody who's here and you don't claim to be a Christian, if you don't believe into Christ and therefore Christ is not your head and you're not a part of his church, 
we'd ask you, I'd ask you to do two things. Number one, I would ask you, if that is your resolved position at this moment in time, to stay in your seat, there's no shame in that. None at all. But second, I would ask that if you want Jesus as your head, as your guide, as your life, then come and may this be your first act of faith. Accept on the Lord Jesus today and come take his supper and trust in him as your head and life. Well, I'll invite the band back up and let me pray and then I'll have the ushers come forward and we'll take the supper together. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I pray that as we come to the table, that we would truly get a glimpse of what is on offer to us, that you are giving us yourself, the fullness of God, as it says in Colossians. I pray that you would help us to trust Jesus, to hold fast to him as our head. May we look to no other authority and no other source of life. And so, Lord, as we come, give us yourself by your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.